Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, you know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point. Because politics needed a rebrand. Hey, what's up? Hello, this is Girl in the Gub, the podcast, the trailer, the trailer, because we want to take this time to introduce ourselves and this podcast and what we're all about. Girl in the Gov, the podcast is an extension of Girl in the Gov and its mission to provide a platform for millennials, zennials, Gen Z to engage with this crazy, evolving, toxic political space in an approachable and accessible way that's not so intimidating and scary. Would you say that's that's accurate, Samantha? Ooh, she just hit the nail on the head. That would be accurate AF. And what are these episodes that we have? We have two a week. So we have Wednesday episodes, which follow our OG format. And that means they are interview style episodes. We bring on expert guests in the political fields to answer all of our questions under the sun and break down just about every political topic that we can think of. We are adding to these topics every week, every day, but every Wednesday you can find a new topic being dissected with a political expert on hand. We have a segment called I Have a Stupid Question, but, and guess what? There's no such thing as a stupid question, but politics and the political space can definitely make us feel like that. These episodes are meant to be evergreen, meaning you can always go back to them, share them with a friend, and continue your learning on particular topics in the political space. We cover everything and anything under the political sun, meaning from reproductive rights to gun rights to voting rights and so much more. We try and cover it all. Of course, if there's a topic that we haven't covered yet, let us know what you want to hear. We are all ears all the time. Now, if you're looking for a little bit more of political news, those top stories that you want to look at throughout a particular week, want to have an understanding of what political stories you want to have your eye on, Top Stories Tuesdays is for you. So, like we said, Wednesdays, interview-style episodes with an expert guest. Tuesdays are Top Stories Tuesdays, so you can get your political news fixed for the week in terms of what stories you want to keep an eye on. Yes, and mixed into all of that is random tidbits about our terrible dating lives, random things that Samantha sees on her walks, <laughs> and we say like a lot. I mean, we were once called the caller daddy of politics, so that is maybe our highest accolade, but should we take a moment just to like toot our own horn for a second, just to really give the people, you know, a snapshot of how far we've come? Let's do it. Let's absolutely do Let's it. Let's do it. Girl, I got the podcast is a viral Spotify podcast. It was on the new and noteworthy on Apple Podcasts. We've charted top 20 on Spotify, top 15 political podcasts on Apple Podcasts, top 50 news podcasts. We've been listed as an Apple shows we love and also featured on Apple's Women History Month podcast playlist. <gasps> wow, Lots of things. Wow, look at us. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. But well, you can us. also look at us. But you can also follow us on social media, and we continue the political learning there. We have a TikTok. We are at Girl in the Gov there, where we. <sighs> We have a range of content coming out, churning out on TikTok, wouldn't you say? 
It's the kitchen sink of content. <laughs> it's the kitchen sink <laughs> of content. Truly, truly. But political ner- learning nonetheless. And we also have two Instagrams. We have at Girl on the Gov and at Girl on the Gov the podcast. At Girl on the Gov is a chance for you to get a lot of action items, resources, a lot of shareable Instagram posts that you can put on your story and share with friends to continue your political impact. Girl on the Gov the podcast Instagram is at Girl on the Gov the podcast, and we share all the podcasts, news, updates, collabs, all of that on there. So follow both, follow all three. And while I have you, Samantha, can you explain what our brand ambassador program is? Because I feel like oh yes, yes we yes, must. I can. So our brand ambassador program is our pride and joy. It is a really exciting extension of our mission. And what we do in this brand ambassador program is we work to connect our network with amazing people that want to get into the political space, whether it's through an internship, whether it's through a fellowship, a job, whatnot. We are creating networking opportunities for people and getting people their foot in the door in the political space. We know from our own experience trying to get into politics, it is a tough world out there. It ain't easy. And so we want to make it just a little bit easier. So our brand ambassador program does just that. It is the star of that program. It's also a community of amazing people that want to talk about politics, share action items to, you know, of course, share the latest political meme, the whole kit and caboodle. But if you want to join the brand ambassador program, get more involved in Girl in the Gov, of course, you can check that out on our website. At girlinthegov.com. Go check it out. Again, more than anything, we really want to just bring our listeners together and continue the political conversation, share action items and more, and just keep spreading that political impact. But Samantha, I really think it's time to give the people what they want. And I think the people really want to hear about you and about your background. Where are you from? What uh, is your career from? background like? Oh, uh, how did Girl in the Gov start? Tell us everything. Oh my God, the questions, the questions of the hour, the things people are at the edge of their seat to know. So I'm from Dr. Oz's state, New Jersey. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> if you know, you know. But nonetheless, I'm from New Jersey originally. I went to school in Pennsylvania at Lafayette College, studied political science, anthropology, and sociology there, and then went into the city and began my career in PR and social media. And in that, I focused on the design industry and did a little bit of this, did a little bit of that, working for startups as well within that. So all the agencies I worked for were startup agencies. So let me tell you, I wore every hat you could possibly wear and I don't even look good in hats. So that's just rude. (laughs) It's a whole thing. Maddie looks good in hats. I look bad in hats. I look like a Q-tip, but I will digress. She doesn't. She doesn't. I do. I do. It's really a problem. Stop it. But stop it. It's fine. But okay, founding story, getting distracted with hats here. So let's get back in time. Let's do a little time travel. Basically, post grad, I still wanted to get involved in politics, still wanted to be a little bit, you know, touching, touching the industry, wasn't sure how I would get back into it. And every time I tried to, I just didn't really find the right fit. And then, and then here's the thing, at the same exact time, I noticed that many of my friends were not civically engaged at all. They weren't registered to vote, all, all that biz. And those two things kind of combined for me in 2018 when I was like, huh, this is interesting. This is a problem. We have a problem to solve here, people. So 
What did we do? What did we do? Started a company called Girl on the Gov, which it's still called today. And in that company, it was really originally an events company. And we paired politics with events, meeting people, aka millennials, zennials, and Gen Zs, where they are already. So in the context of New York City, that was your classic Pilates class or your, you know, rooftop bar. You're trying to get the latest IG pick at TikTok, whatever, brought the political learning to the spaces that you were already at. And that's where it all began. And then you might be wondering, okay, you're in New York. Maddie's in SF, which she'll tell you about, right? How did you guys meet? Like, what is this whole song and dance? Why are we here on this podcast? Well, I can tell you. It's called COVID. It's called a pandemic, which obviously dislike that element but what it did force us to do is to be online more and as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with sort of this events oriented company that obviously had to take a little pause a moment during the pandemic I was like let me just figure out a way to boost you know the social following let's see who we can connect with and I followed Maddie on Instagram IG and you know what she did she DM'd me and she said do you want to start a podcast and I said hmm start a podcast with a stranger on the other side of the country sure why not sure you'll load sign me freaking up wall sign me up sign me up that's literally the story swear to god Sam was literally doing Bible. a follow for follow just yep. the real just OG Instagram situation and I shot my shot and I said I am obsessed with this mission we need to make politics much easier to understand for us young folk and we thought a podcast would be the great greatest way to do that in a pandemic so a little bit about me not that anyone asked Samantha, can you just ask me? I did. Just because. Oh, can you oh. ask me? Well, I, I gave you like a nod, a wink, and a nod, but Madison, tell us a little <laughs> bit about you. <laughs> okay, I will. So, my name is Madison Blue Medved. You can call me Maddie. I grew up in California in the Bay Area in the South Bay. I went to school at LMU in Los Angeles, California. I played Division One soccer, slight flex for you guys. And graduated in 2018, I've since worked on political campaigns from Gavin Newsom's campaign for governor to Tom Steyer's presidential campaign in 2019-2020. I guess I forgot to mention I studied politics, political science, Mm. and journalism in college. And basically, yeah, fast forward to that 2020 moment in July where Samantha... That fateful day. I got that cute little notification on Instagram and the rest is literally history. And so we launched this podcast in September, October of 2020, right before the wild and crazy election that was Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And we've been kicking ever since. Here we are. We're just super excited to have you here listening interested in potentially hopping on board and subscribing and starting your political learning with us we would love to have you so thank you for listening to our random spiel hopefully it was interesting in the slightest bit so subscribe rate review again those episodes come out tuesdays and wednesdays and you can follow us on social media to get more content from us in the meantime outside of tuesdays and wednesdays And before you leave, I will transition into telling you that the rest of this episode is actually a audio political glossary. So we have chopped up some of the, I guess, most asked questions about the political Mm -hmm. space that we have asked our amazing guests 
through the years at this point. That makes us feel <laughs> so old. And from what is redistricting to what is NATO, we have all of the answers for that in this audio glossary with timestamps. So if right now you want those definitions or if in the future you're like, wait, I need to know what gerrymandering is. Girl in the Gov has an audio glossary with timestamps. Let me go listen or let me tell my friend that she can go listen because she was also curious what gerrymandering is. We have an audio glossary for you guys. And so, again, this is chopped up from episodes in the past. We also will link the episodes from which these come from if you guys want to listen to the whole episodes, which we always recommend because these are all amazing episodes with amazing guests. So that's that on that. And that is our trailer. That is our intro to our audio glossary. Samantha, do you have any closing notes for the people? Closing notes. Let's see. If you have any other questions for us, hit us in the DMs. You can always find us too at info at girlinthegov.com. So let us know your political cues, what you want to see. Hit us up. We look forward to y'all listening to this glossary and all of our other episodes. So welcome. What is redistricting? Totally. Yes. Redistricting is the process of drawing new maps for who represents you in Congress and in your state legislature. And it happens in every state every 10 years. So this is the process that was set out way back in the day uh, through the constitution. And so after the census happens every 10 years, we figure out where people have moved from, where they moved to because our members of Congress and, and state legislatures are be- are based on population distribution. And so that process is called reapportionment. And so last year we found out which states were going to lose seats in, in Congress, which seats were going to gain seats in Congress. And then each state has to, has to go about their own process for drawing those lines. And that's known as redistricting. What is gerrymandering? Sure. We talk it on the line about how gerrymandering is cheating at the redistricting process, right? So redistricting has to happen every 10 years. Populations have changed. We've counted them all through the census. And now we need to reallocate people so that they're effectively represented. But gerrymandering takes that process and kind of turns it on its head, right? And makes it unfair because gerrymandering is this process of really drawing lines so that a political party has power that doesn't match you know their influence or their size within a state or within a district so it's cheating at that process in ways that makes the lines unfair even though the redistricting process is trying to reallocate people and make sure that there is equal representation Let's kick it off with how are secretaries of state elected? Basically, I'm the I'm the chief voter advocate for Michigan. I'm in charge and oversee all of all democracy related things from campaign finance reports to actual voting itself to the announcement of the unofficial and subsequent official results of our elections. It's different state by state. And I'll I'll say at the outset, I wrote a book on the Secretary of State Office back in 2008 called Secretaries of State Guardians of the Democratic Process. So all of these questions or a lot of these questions if or ones that we don't get to, folks can go to that and see, you know, all I the different things, like how they're selected. Because we as voters 
in most states do choose these people who occupy the role of overseeing democracy for everyone. So it is really important that that in the, the vast majority of states where we elect secretaries of state, that all voters know how important and influential these offices are, because it truly impacts every other office. If, mm -hmm. you know, since we oversee the pathway to power and all in selecting all of those other office holders, which is essentially the power of the vote. So in about 36 states, the secretary of state oversees elections. In some other states, there is a board of election, like in North Carolina, Wisconsin, New York. In some states, the secretary of state is appointed particularly by the legislature or the governor in Pennsylvania. And for example, the secretary is appointed by the governor and then New Hampshire and a lot of the New England states have appointments, New Hampshire and Maine, the legislature appoints the secretary. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, but in the vast majority of states, the citizens elect the secretary of state usually every four years. All things attorney general. Can you give us the lay of the land as to what that role entails? What's the day to day of like an attorney general? Walk us through that. Well, normally what an attorney general does is, uh, you know, you're the top lawyer for the state, the top law enforcement official for the state and the chief consumer advocate for the state. But really what you do is you represent government agencies. So if the state of Michigan gets sued, we handle that lawsuit. If any of our agencies get sued, we handle those lawsuits. We provide advice to them. I represent the secretary of state and the governor. And so we represent the state of Michigan, but also I represent the people of the state of Michigan. So we bring cases proactively. I uh, have criminal jurisdiction over all 83 counties of our state. And so I can bring a criminal case any place. I can bring a case on behalf of consumers, consumer protection cases, environmental cases, anything that is really in the best interest of the people of Michigan. I have the ability to intervene in cases and I have the ability to actually bring a complaint. So it's very broad authority from a civil perspective, from a criminal perspective. You want to talk about the role of being a governor and really, you know, kind of what those powers entail. Can you kind of run through yeah. those responsibilities? Sure. Well, you know, I think the main responsibility is to look out for the people. And, you know, a great president once said that government should be of the people, by the people, and for the people, and not for the big corporations and not for the parties, but for the people who are the boss. I mean, it is democracy. And so looking out for their interests, protecting Florida's beautiful environment, our environment and our economy are inextricably linked. And you know, we have a great tourist industry and to make sure that we're watchful of our, our streams, our water, our Everglades, they're pretty precious things. And so I take that very seriously. And then, you know, guiding in, in education, making sure that our teachers are respected and paid what they should be. But on the national level, we have a national guard, of course, as all states do. And the governor is the commander in chief of that national guard. And they can be dispatched, you know, to help out in situations across the globe or here in the nation's capital to protect, you know, those who are serving against the kind of insurrections and stupid things that we've had, you know, in the not too distant history in yeah. America. So it's pretty wide, wide ranging, you know, it's health, safety, and welfare of, our, of the people of the state of Florida and to be their CEO basically, and always have their interests, their desires, their hopes and dreams uppermost in your heart. What do lieutenant governors do? What's like a day in the life? Sure. Well, the lieutenant governor in the state of Vermont is a unique position, but I should say that lieutenant governors across the nation 
all of our roles differ slightly depending on how our constitutions are set up. Here in Vermont, I'm part of the executive branch. So much like, let's say the vice president, I serve in the executive. I have to be ready to step in at any point if something should happen to our governor. I am elected separately, which is pretty unique and different and can talk a little bit about that. But the day-to-day -day responsibilities are actually in the Senate of the Vermont legislature. I serve as the Senate president, which means I sign every bill before it goes to the governor. I preside over the Senate, sort of like a judge presiding over a courtroom. So with the gavel, managing and setting forth the rules of the Senate and the legislative process, I have to be ready at any point to do a tie-breaking vote, either on a procedural issue or an issue of policy, whether or not a bill should pass or not. So it's a really interesting position. Beyond that, serve on the committee on committees, which is sounds a little nerdy, but it's a, <laughs> it's a little nerdy, but it's a position that's really important where you work with all of the senators to assign their committee assignments. I also oh, working cool. with a parliamentarian decide which bills go to which committees. So there's some interesting, quite like political and policy oriented day-to-day -day activities. And then finally, it's a statewide platform, one where I can do whatever I want in terms of bringing issues to light, bringing mm -hmm. different communities into the state house. What is NATO? Who's included? Who's not included? Give us the rundown. Sure. Well, NATO is an international organization that was launched after World War II to try to preserve peace in Europe and actually more globally. So originally it was conceived of as a collective defense organization, which meant that primarily, as you may be familiar with Article 5, that if one country is the victim of an attack, all of the others would come to its defense. And with that notion, with that idea of collective defense, the, the countries involved really thought that this would deter aggression from other powers, and you know, in particular at that point, the Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, th there was questioning, should NATO continue? Because, you know, its purpose, it, it doesn't need to necessarily defend against this threat anymore. And the members decided, yes, it should continue, but it would have a larger remit. So it became more of a collective security type of organization, not just focused on defense, but also on humanitarian operations, counterterrorism, protecting against cyber attacks, um, looking at sort of disasters and how to kind of respond in a more comprehensive way. So the main members of NATO are those who are in, in the so-called transatlantic alliance, so ma mainly European countries and Northern American countries. There are 30 members. So this is really what it was designed to do, is to bring together in a stronger way transatlantic countries on both sides of the Atlantic. That means that countries that are not in those two regions are not members of NATO. And it, and it's not also the case that all of the countries, for example, in Europe are members of NATO, as we're seeing with, you know, the current crisis and some of the rhetoric that Moscow is engaged in to try to kind of prevent NATO from being any stronger. So yeah, that's kind of the basics of, of NATO. So the House Ways and Means Committee, what does it do? What's it all about? What is this committee tasked with? So the House Ways and Means Committee is the only committee in Congress that's actually in the U.S. Constitution. And there's dozens of committees. Oh, wow. So it's the only one that was mentioned from the very beginning of the country. And it's the ways and means of funding all the stuff the government does. 
So what are the ways and means of funding government? Usually taxes, mm -hmm. you know, income taxes, corporate taxes, estate taxes. Where are we gonna get the money to pay for all the different things we do? How are we gonna pay for social security? How are we gonna fund the infrastructure program? How are we mm -hmm. gonna do, you know, the president wants to do the big build back better program. And he said, listen, under the Trump administration, they reduced the taxes on the wealthiest Americans from 39.6 down to 37%. We're saying we should put it back up to 39.6. Mm -hmm. They reduced the corporate tax from 35 down to 21%, big dramatic decrease. The corporations totally. weren't even asking for that. They were asking yeah. for like 28 or 25%. We're saying, you know what? It's, it helps the businesses be more competitive in America to, to have reduced it, but we reduced it way too low. Let's move yeah. it back up to like 25 or so. We won't put it back up to where it was, 35, but let's move it up to 25 or 26. So this is really a big debate in the country about taxes. It's like, what is the Constitution? Well, it's a document that was written in 1787 by a, a group of about 55 people. And it is the supreme legal document for the United States. So it is, it is, it is what our, our federal government can do and can't do. It's what the states can and can't do. And it basically sets up the entire legal framework for our country. So there's nothing higher in terms of, of strength or power than the Constitution. It tells, it says what laws Congress can, is allowed to pass, what, you know, if it's not in there, Congress can't do it, although there are some leeways that I, I that I can get to in a second. But it basically sets up the entire governmental structure and framework legally for our country. Can you explain the Bill of Rights and really its role in the Constitution? Sure. So the Bill of Rights is actually the amendment. So the Constitution has seven articles. So those articles were written in 1787, and then they ratified it in 1788, and then it took effect on in March of, of 1789. But the Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, and those were ratified two years later. And they're actually all written by the same person, James Madison, who was one of the chief architects of the Constitution. He was like the note taker. He was the guy who, he was literally living, I mean, this is, how about this for a millennial? He was 36 and living in his parents' basement when he was attending the <laughs> Constitutional Convention. He took all the notes. He was only 5'4", probably didn't have like the most active social life. He was really, oh. really into the Constitution. And he studied all these legal texts from the history, international history and around the world and past governments. I mean, this guy was a genius. And it's funny because he's like five or six or seven on our list of founding fathers. But in terms of the Constitution, like this is his document. His This is his framework, his structure, like the separation of powers, the branches. Like this is really the first plan they went off of at the Constitution was all him. So he gets credit for having the most to do with the Constitution of every any single person in the seven articles, but he also wrote the entire Bill of Rights. He actually wrote 19 amendments, but only wow. 10 ended up getting ratified. So it basically says what our rights are as individuals protecting us from a government because designing this structure of government, they wanted it to be different than what they had in England, which was a, a, a monarchy, a king, a totalitarian regime. And so the United States to that point didn't have like a centralized government. It was a group of 13 states with a pretty loose agreement of like, we'll help each other in some capacity and like, you know, barely pitch in. But creating this more central government, there were concerns that it would be too strong. And so part of James Madison's getting all the states to get on board was to say, if you ratify this constitution, I promise you, I will add a bill of rights to specifically say what the individual is, is protected from in terms of the government can't, you know, fuck with that. 
So he wrote, the, the Ten Amendments were ratified and it's everything from in the first, you know, freedom of speech and uh, freedom of religion. You can't establish a national religion. You have the right to protest. You have the right to complain to the government, right to the free press. There's obviously the Second Amendment, which I saw on the list that we're going to talk about in a second. There's your right to be free from, you know, unreasonable search and seizure. So like the cops can't just stop you for no reason and, you know, shake you down. They have to have a, a, an actual reason or suspicion you committed a crime. There's the Fifth and Sixth and Seventh Amendments have to do with the legal process. If it's a, if you're on trial as a defendant, how the criminal processes goes. There's cruel and unusual punishment. And then the ninth and 10th are sort of overlooked, but they're really interesting. And the ninth says that just because we included a bunch of stuff in here doesn't mean that's the only rights that you have. There might be some rights that we forgot to include and what is in the constitution can't be used to deny the rights that we forgot to include, which is a pretty genius way of saying like, not only do we leave some stuff out, but it's not, you know, the stuff in here can't be used to minimize the stuff that we left out. And then the okay. final one is the 10th Amendment, which says that if, you know, the, the Constitution doesn't say that the federal government has that power, and it doesn't say that the states don't have that power, then it's up to the states and the, the people. So it basically, theoretically, it's like an infinite amount of power that is at the state and local level, because the Constitution specifically only lays out like the, the, the outlines of the federal government, but it can't go beyond what it's allowed to do in the Constitution. Which is wild. What is the Supreme Court? What does it do? <laughs> Great question. Uh, the Supreme Court's the highest court in the land. It is our, it's, a, it's part of the federal judiciary. So the Supreme Court is, it was created by the Constitution in Article 3. And in no other courts, federal were actually created in the Constitution. They left that up to Congress. Congress then created the federal circuit courts as well as the federal district courts. And it's just kind of been that way. But yeah, the Supreme Court's the highest, it's a litigant's last resort. So it decides cases, you know, we're going to talk a little bit today about the um, NCAA case where they were dealing with antitrust law. So they, you know, they hear all types of cases, but they also, the biggest power of the Supreme Court is what is known as judicial review, which I think is so fun to talk about, but no one else does because it's its power to basically interpret the constitution. And there's there are a lot of philosophy involved in government. And so one of the things about the Supreme Court though, and the way our system works for better or worse, right or wrong, whether it's how it was intended to be, Supreme Court is the final say on what the constitution means essentially. And that's a really big power. And that's where you hear all of these typically more of the hot topic cases or some kind of interpretation of the constitution, particular, particularly with individual rights and liberties. And that is what the Supreme Court does a lot, is interpret the Constitution. What is the wage gap? The gender pay gap refers to the sizable difference in income between the average woman and the average man in our country. So um, this wage gap exists across nearly every profession. And then it even takes into account years of experience and also years and level of education as well. So Equal Pay Day is the day in the year that we highlight as a coalition and kind of as a country, right? That in the U.S., the average woman working full-time year-round only this year is 83 cents per dollar paid to the average man. So that's the day that we kind of amplify and mark and observe that message. And then we do observe more than one Equal Pay Day. I really want to get into telling you why. So we know uh, that there's a wage gap that's experienced by all women. And so we observe Equal Pay Day, of course. But for women of color who sit at the intersection of gender and race discrimination, the wage gap numbers get much worse. And because of this, we really want to bring light to this. I'm going to show just how far into the year that they would have had to work to catch up. And I really want to use the term like catch up loosely because 
nobody's really catching up, but yeah. for the purposes of this conversation, this is when they catch up. And so we observe different demographic equal paydays throughout the year. So we're seeing that Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander women are earning just 75 cents for every dollar paid to a white non-Hispanic man. Black women are earning 58 cents for every dollar paid out to a white non-Hispanic. Native American women are earning just 50 cents. Um, and Latinas are earning 49 cents to every dollar that's paid out wow. to a white Hispanic man, to a white non-Hispanic man, sorry. So beyond March 15th, which is when we did observe Equal Pay Day this year, we have a calendar of those Equal Pay Days that reflect the larger wage gap that's experienced by the women of color and where it places them throughout the year. Mm-hmm. You mentioned anti-Semitism a few times. So can we kind of get like the definition and the run through of like really what that means? And yeah. So anti-Semitism is the belief or behavior hostile towards Jews because they're Jewish. They can take a lot of different forms, sort of religious teachings, proclaiming inferiority or political efforts to isolate, oppress or otherwise injure people. And I think it's important to note that I think a lot of people sort of see Jews as purely a religious group, which could then hypothetically not be oppressed if they chose not to engage in religious practices. That's really a misnomer. Most Jews see themselves as more than solely a faith. But, you know, Martin Buber put it really beautifully that Judaism, the faith, is the evolving faith of the civilization of Jews. So it is a distinct ethnic group. And within that and within the history uh, across the world, there really are very specific tropes and ideas. And what's fascinating is you'll see them across political spectrums. Jews have too much access to power. Jews have too much, you know, Jews control the world in sort of a secret cabal that's manipulating things. And Jews have too much access to money. Jews control the banks. Jews control the world. So it really functions as a conspiracy theory with Jews, this vulnerable group, as a scapegoat. And really, you know, we're talking about something that across the political spectrum, you can look at it and see like, wow, the stereotypes are remarkably similar. And you're seeing whatever the societal ill is. One big misnomer, though, is that anti-Semitism really only affects Jews. Actually, anti-Semitism has shown to be devastating to democracy. Because think about it. If there's a secret group of people who are controlling all the strings and those people are evil and maybe we should hurt them or stop them, but why would you be invested in voting or engaging in the political process if the Jews have all the power? So it's really deeply corrosive to democratic societies to let anti-Semitism go unchecked. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What is direct democracy? 
Sure. So direct democracy is the process of people getting legislation on the ballot without going through their legislators. So ordinarily, when we you know look at laws being made, it's a lot of people who we elected coming up with ideas for what sort of policies they want to see, and then sort of gathering their caucus around them to get them voted into law. But in terms of direct democracy, it is literally people saying, this is what we want to see as a law in our state. This is what we want to see as an amendment to our constitution and our, and so we are going to lead this, this charge. And then it, it falls on us to sort of formulate our own caucus through the gathering of signatures, but it is the most direct way for people to have to play a part in the legislative process. Can you explain what is a ballot measure? Sure. When it comes to ballot measures, I feel like we've all been failed by the public education system when it comes to civics education. So ballot ballot measures are a way for people to directly pass laws or constitutional amendments in their states without the involvement of politicians. So the basics are a group of concerned, interested, motivated, activated citizens comes together and drafts the law or the constitutional amendment they want to see. They collect enough signatures from their fellow voters in their state, all of whom are signing a petition to say, I want the opportunity to vote on this. Mm -hmm. If they collect enough signatures, that direct question goes on the ballot for the entire electorate of that city or state to vote on. And if they pass it, if more people vote yes than no, then that directly becomes law or gets written directly into the constitution of the state. Now, there's plenty of other steps in there. There's a lot of money spent on a big yes or no campaign, vote yes on Proposition X or vote no on Proposition Y, just like you would see candidates campaigning over who should who people should vote for. But the fundamental basics are on issues where you can really boil it down into a simple, single topic, you can put these issues directly in front of voters. And I will say, not every state in our country has this option. Only 23 states around the country can you do it at the statewide level, but lots and lots and lots of additional cities, municipalities, counties can pass ballot measures too. So no matter where you live, it's worth thinking about is a ballot measure part of the strategy you want to advance on the issues that you care about. 